Welcome to Elevate. I'm so happy you're here with me today, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. As an evidence-based coach, mentor, and entrepreneur, I'm obsessed with learning and personal development as it's transformed my entire life, as well as those I get to work with. And to be quite frank, it's literally the entire reason this podcast exists, to feel your growth, gain perspective, and acquire knowledge. So buckle up, friends. You're in for a treat. And as always, thank you for supporting me and the show so we can continue to elevate our own lives as well as those you share this with. Now, let's get into it. What is going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of Elevate. Today, I have Corey Wilkes, Doctor of Psychology, getting his degree at Marshall University. Corey, for those of you that, for those of our audience that aren't familiar with you, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I actually already have my degree. I graduated from Marshall. Um, So Corey Wilkes, I am a licensed clinical psychologist and executive coach, writer, entrepreneur, kind of do a bunch of things. Um, A couple of years ago, I left the therapy world and now I mostly write and coach and run my own business. So how long were you doing um, psychology before you launched your business? I believe it was 12 years. So, I mean, it took me about 12 years to get my doctorate, right? Um, And then I, and throughout school, you know, you practice therapy and then I graduated, got licensed, did it some more. I mostly worked in the medical field. And then, um, yeah, around two years ago, I left that and kind of started doing my own thing. So what got you into psychology? So a lot of people go into psychology to either fix other people or to fix themselves. Mm -hmm. I got into it because I had a professor early on who had just a a really different perspective of psychology and a a real passion for it. And the way he kind of explained it was like, people are like puzzles. And through studying psychology, you can better understand those puzzles and help people solve their own puzzles. So that was sort of why I got into it. Um, You know, sometimes people get into it because they struggled with anxiety and they wanted to learn how to deal with their own anxiety. And then they ended up helping other people with anxiety. That wasn't really the path I took. For me, it was much more cerebral of like, I want to understand people better. So I chose to study psychology. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's definitely something I see a lot with people that get into therapy for eating disorders or RDs, right? They tend to have their own issues around those entities, and then they want to learn to overcome them, and then they want to help other people overcome them. Um, So it's interesting that you went in it purely out of curiosity um, to build a better connection, but not necessarily your own personal struggles. Um, When it came to studying psychology specifically, was there an area that you found the most fascinating that you tended to gravitate towards? <clears throat> so it's a complicated question. So my all of my degrees are in clinical psychology, right? So there are many different types of many different topics within psychology, right? There's developmental psychology, which studies how we develop across the lifespan. So there are like child developmental psychologists, adult developmental. Um, specialists, that kind of thing. There's experimental, there's a bunch of different subsets of psychology. I studied clinical psychology, which is psychopathology, which is just the the term we we use for like mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So all of my classes after my bachelor's all revolved around understanding people with, with mental illnesses and how to treat them. 
I enjoyed that, but what I was more interested in that I didn't really have a lot of opportunities to explore purely because, you know, my my track was clinical was positive psychology, Mm -hmm. right? So clinical psychology studies illness and how to treat it. Positive psychology studies thriving, flourishing, right? So clinical psychology is all about bringing somebody from dysfunction to function, right? From having really bad panic attacks or, you know, social anxiety to the point you can't walk into a store to being able to go to the store on your own, right? Or to learning deep breathing enough so that you're not, you know, panicking all the time. Positive psychology would take somebody who's already functioning pretty well and helping them optimize, thrive, flourish, whatever term you want to put on that self-actualization, that kind of stuff. So positive psychology is much more focused on understanding our strengths rather than purely trying to shore up our weaknesses. Because one of the things that I realized a little too late was clinical psychology defines wellness as the absence of illness. Mm-hmm. But just because you're not sick doesn't mean you're healthy, Ooh. right? And that's really what positive psychology is. Is like, well, what is healthy? How can we become healthier? How can we actually optimize and flourish? So I didn't get to study that very much throughout school. But after I graduated, and especially after I left therapy, that's when I started studying it more so. Um, and it's been way more fulfilling. So tell me a little bit about that because they don't, um, like you said, they don't necessarily focus on that. So when you're coaching someone who is, isn't sick or not struggling, doesn't have anxiety, they're just kind of even keel, maybe they're ambitious. Um, how do you work with them? Maybe it's defining clear objective goals and then seeking out, okay, the bridging the gap between who you are and who you want to become and kind of then integrating reverse engineering habits, daily consistent habits. Tell me a little bit about that. So first off, so the main difference between therapy and coaching, right? Therapy is about bringing somebody to functioning. Coaching is about helping somebody flourish, right? Therapy versus coaching is the same difference with clinical versus positive psychology, largely. Now, that doesn't mean that people who seek out coaching don't have anxiety or don't struggle to a certain degree with just normal things. So when I say normal, right? This isn't a judgment. A lot of people um, get get pissy with when I say somebody's normal or with a normal function. When I say normal, think of like a bell curve, right? Like those curves you saw like in stats class or whatever. Normal just means this is where the majority of people fall within this bell curve, okay? Right. So for example, it is normal to experience low-grade anxiety or stage fright or you know getting up in front of a bunch of people and talking. If you experience anxiety in that situation, that is relatively normal, okay? The difference is when it becomes significant, way more severe with how long it lasts, how often it occurs, or how bad it is. Right. So it's one thing for me to get like sweaty palms before I go up on stage. It's another for me to be vomiting violently because I'm so anxious. And then I just I'm having a panic attack and feeling like I'm I'm about to die. Right. There, there, there's there are levels to it. Right. So a lot of the people I work with, occasionally they may struggle with anxiety or something else, but one, it's 
within like the normal range of anxiety. And that isn't a focus of what we talk about. So a lot of the work that I do in the approach that I take is very values-based, right? So, because for me, I'm a big fan of the stoic concept of memento mori, Mm -hmm. which for anybody like watching, like I've got a skull here, like my right tattoo sleeve is dedicated to memento mori. I got the, the raven over here. And all memento mori means is remember death or remember you will die. It sounds kind of depressing, but it isn't meant to be. It's meant to be a reminder of, look, you have a finite amount of time. Use your mortality as a motivator to live fully. So I focus heavily on clarifying your values and then building your life and your business aligned with whatever you truly value. Because for me, that is the path toward fulfillment, self-actualization. Again, whatever term you want to put on that, just getting more out of life. The clearest path to doing that is fundamentally what resonates with you. Like what are your core values or your core value? I usually try to simplify it down to a single core value. And then what steps do you need to take? What goals do you need to create that progressively move you one step closer to a life aligned with that core value? Because that for me is how you make the most of the time that you have left. And that is how you do work that is meaningful, purpose-driven and fulfilling for you personally. So I think that's fascinating because one thing that I find a lot um, with clients that I work with is they tend to chase status over meaningful endeavors. And one thing that I say a lot is like, if you don't know what it is that you find meaningful, society will tell you what is. And I'm curious, uh, one quote that you have that I wanted you to expand on is that status games are for people too insecure to be themselves. So um, I want you to expand on that, but I also would love your opinion on how you think social media and the internet is removing people from their own authenticity or their own pursuits of things that they genuinely find meaningful, maybe out of the four fears that you've listed before as well. Okay. So... The, the thing with status games, status games are about signaling something, right? Like I'm, I'm worthy, which is usually what it comes down to is we use status, status games to as more of a surrogate for acceptance and validation, right? So if I can't validate myself, if I don't believe in my own inherent self-worth, I have to get that from somewhere. So I play status games. I, you know, work my ass off to, to, to make a bunch of money and buy fancy bullshit so that other people are like, oh, Corey drives this, or he wears these shoes, or he wears this kind of watch. He must be important. And then I get that validation of, oh, good job, Corey, or oh, good job. You know, clearly you know what you're doing. Clearly you're successful because of the brand of watch you wear, right? If you buy that watch purely because you like it, cool. But if you're buying it because it is a surrogate for acceptance and self-worth, that's when it becomes problematic. And that is honestly how a lot of people kind of go through life. They they don't actually, you know, Gary Vee has his own quotes on this, but you know, basically you work a job you hate to buy shit you don't need to impress people you don't like, right? Or, you know, impress people you don't even care about. Yeah. And that's the cycle a lot of people get caught up in. And again, why I steer toward, okay, but fundamentally, what do you give a shit about? Why do you give a shit about it? Like, what is your core value 
and why, and how can you build your life in alignment with that? Because that's really all there is, right? And that allows you to avoid all of those bullshit games that don't matter, that don't resonate with you, and that typically actively steer you away from a more meaningful life. Um, what was the other question with all oh, just social media in general? So <clears throat> I will give this caveat. Social media can be incredible or it can be a dumpster fire. Yeah. Right. And and I am most active on Twitter. Like I'm on most of the platforms, um, but I'm most active on Twitter. And a handful of years ago, I had like a personal Twitter account and it was just a fucking dumpster fire. Like it was drama and just bullshit all day, every day. And I hated it. I actively hated Twitter. And then I shut everything down. A couple of years ago, when I started, you know, all of my professional stuff, I created a new one and it's been completely different. Like it has been phenomenal. Like I've met incredible people. I've, you know, made genuine connections. I've also, you know, been able to build a viable business largely off of, of Twitter, right? So it really depends on how you use it. The issue, and I won't go into a lot of detail with like examples because I try not to talk shit about people, but just it's a personal thing. But you 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 can probably think of prominent public figures who started off with a really good message and then they got really popular. And then they started paying a little too much attention to the echo chamber. And then all of a sudden they just became somebody totally different to, to placate the masses. And this is the issue. A lot of people who, who are public facing, right? Like, you know, me and you and, you know, other people who create content, it's really easy to chase vanity metrics. It's really easy to chase likes, followers, subscribers. So when you put out content that gets a lot of likes, the, the, you know, the, the traditional advice is we'll do more of that. The issue is you have to think through that of, okay, but what type of people will this content attract? I learned that lesson early on. Um, cause I was, you know, you read these like growth guides and, you know, you you join these groups and everybody supports each other's shit, whatever. And I was growing, but then I looked at the actual people who were engaging with me, the ways that they thought about the world, you know, they're just their inclinations for one thing or another with life, the types of content they put out. And I realized I don't want my audience to be made up of those people because mm -hmm. I don't want to be affiliated with those people. So I was like, who am I? What is authentic to me? Fuck all those other people. Right. And that's really what helped me shift my content of like, look, I'm going to be me and talk about what I find valuable, things that I've learned along the, you know, along life. And I'm going to create content that my ideal person who would be in my tribe, that person would enjoy this kind of content. Right. When I do that, that allows me to be authentic and really genuinely connect with people rather than purely putting out stuff just to get likes from anybody. Right. So like that's that's one thing that I've I've learned the hard way. Yeah. And I find it very interesting because I can't remember who mentioned something along these lines, but the goal 
truly is to provide some type of insight value or perspective shift um, for someone who's in shoes that maybe you can relate to or things that you've learned and you would like that advice to kind of help people move past that obstacle or avoid that sticking point maybe. And one thing I see a lot is that the creator becomes molded to the audience. And so they're not necessarily the creator anymore. The audience actually shapes and molds them almost like a mound of clay. And so if you look too deeply into, well, this blew up or this went off or this type of content, you know, then you have to question like, am I genuinely representing myself, the things that I believe in, the things that I value and the things that I find meaningful in hopes to actually propel another person's life forward? Or am I molding and shifting myself into this ideal person that gets more validation through the algorithm or people that don't know you, don't like you, and don't really give a fuck about you at the end of the day? Um, and so I always, whenever I make content, I do it from a place of, this is what I wish someone had told me. And this is the person that I wish that I had. And if it converts great. And if it doesn't, okay. The 200 people that loved it are 200 people that are in my ecosystem that I love having there. Um, and I think that we get lost. It's very interesting. And I don't know if you ever went through this or thought about this concept, but I know a lot of creators will be upset if they only get like 200 likes on something. Right. And I'm like, can you imagine 200 people in a room right now supporting you? Like those are all human beings that just decided to give you their attention. Like whether it's 10 people or 10,000 people, I think that we tend to get lost in metrics. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that or noticed it, or even have colleagues or friends that have gone through that shift as well. Yeah. Well, and two things with this. So one, it's easy to become a caricature of yourself, mm. right? Like as a creator, when you chase those vanity metrics and you more and more try to appeal to, you know, the, the masses, quote unquote, you eventually become a caricature. Like all the things that your, you know, your critics said were problematic become more problematic. All the, you know, just in, in the, the stereotypes that other people have of you become the reality because you have to get more outrageous, more polarizing, just more of an asshole, more of whatever. And then eventually like you lose yourself, right? The other thing is like that, that way of going about things. Cause I, I have a, a pretty small audience across the board so far. Um, I know people with 60, a hundred, 300,000 followers across platforms and they can't monetize. Right. Like meaning when they put out a course or a product, nobody wants to buy it. Mm. And it's interesting because it's like, well, but you, you have 300,000 people, like how can you not make money? And part of, and there are a couple of reasons for this, but the main reason is that they built an audience of basically low quality followers. And by that, I mean, low affinity, meaning they don't actually give a shit about you or your content. It's just, it's just something like something they're just mindlessly consuming. They don't resonate with you and your story because you didn't share anything about yourself. So you're just a, a public figure without any personality, without any quirks, without any story. So there's no emotional resonance with the audience you've created, right? And a lot, of, you know, on the more like business end, you're not creating shit that people actually want. 
right? That's why like so many people like, they're like, oh, I'm an influencer, buy my growth guide because that's all they can sell. They don't have like anything else because they built an audience that doesn't care about them. They chased thousands of likes and whatever content will get the most engagement. But what is the quality of that engagement? Are you actually creating a, a tribe of people who share similar values, similar goals, similar mindsets, philosophies about the world? Or are you just trying to, to hit some random follower count because then that magically means you're going to be successful. Those are the issues I see a lot of people really struggle with within like, you know, creator economy type stuff. Yeah. I've seen that a lot um, in my demographic as well. I have a background in um, my master's is in exercise science. And so being a coach and kind of looking at Instagram model influencers, right. They have massive followings and massive interactions, but they can't sell an ebook. Right. And it's like, okay, well, you would think, right, with those numbers, you would be blowing up. Uh, But it's that gap between, you know, being vulnerable, sharing something about yourself that people can resonate with. Um, They build that like and trust and you show your authority while also being compassionate and not too extreme. Right. Um, And most of it truly, I think, is is coming behind or removing ego with certain things. And I think that a lot of people lead with pride to put out this idea that everything is great. Um, But if everything is always sunshine and rainbows, like it's almost unrelatable because you feel inadequate in comparison to that person. So they're, they could never understand you um, or empathize with the things that you're experiencing. Uh, One thing that you talk about a lot is the four fears. And so I want you to break those down Um, and what they are, and then the steps that you've created to kind of face them and overcome them. So the four horsemen of fear are what I call the four most common limiting beliefs that hold people back. So the first one is fear of failure. That's something we're all familiar with, right? Like, what if I'm not good enough? What if this doesn't work out? Whatever. Then there is fear of ridicule, which is what if people make fun of me? What if people don't like this? What will my friends and family say if I do X? And then there's fear of uncertainty, which is what, you know, which decision should I make? Which camera should I buy? Which, you know, website domain should, you know, is the perfect one for my brand or like all this, all these little bullshit things of like analysis paralysis, right? Cause you got a fork in the road and you're so afraid of making the wrong decision. You just kind of sit there and you're paralyzed by going down all the different rabbit holes, doing all the research. You never actually do the thing. And then the fourth one, which seems weird is fear of success. And it's like, well, why would I be afraid to achieve the thing I claim to want? Mm-hmm. And the reason for this for most people is a couple things. For most of us, if you haven't achieved major success, whatever that means to you, then achieving success represents crossing a threshold. If you've never achieved success, the only version of you that you understand is pre-success you. Well, we, you know, sort of instinctually fear things that we don't understand. Well, post-success you feels foreign. They feel alien because you don't know that person. So the most common things I hear from people are like, well, what if I lose my ambition when I become successful? What if I become corrupted by power and influence, Mm -hmm. right? 
What if it changes me and I just, I become arrogant or what if I just, I lose that, that tenacity, that grit that I used to always have as an underdog. And then other people believe like they deeply believe that they are undeserving of success. So when you believe you don't deserve it or that it'll change you for the worse or whatever, and all these other, you know, limiting all these other fears, these horsemen, we tend to engage in self-sabotaging behaviors. So perfectionism largely is, is a bullshit term because people I call like, it oh, glorified procrastination. Yeah. Like here's, here's the thing. Like everybody has a high bar for quality. That's not perfectionism. Perfection is unattainable. So perfectionism is expecting yourself to attain the unattainable. That's what's bullshit. You don't struggle with high bar for quality. You don't just, you know, have a really hard work ethic or really high standards. Perfectionism is when your standards are so high, they prevent you from doing anything. Perfectionism isn't your issue. Your issue is what perfectionism is allowing you to avoid. So psychologists, we, we call this a functional analysis. What function does a behavior serve? The function that perfectionism or procrastination serves is usually to help you avoid the thing you're actually afraid of. So if you're afraid, let's, let's just use writing as an example. If you are writing an article or a book or whatever, and you are deeply afraid that it will fail, or you're afraid that people are going to make fun of you, then saying, oh, just, I have a really high bar for quality. It isn't ready yet. It isn't ready yet. I need to perfect it. Then your perfectionism is allowing you to avoid hitting publish or dragging your feet and not hitting your word count or not editing or not doing the shit you need to do to actually publish. Procrastination isn't your issue. Your issue is you're fucking afraid and you're procrastinating to avoid the thing you're afraid of. You're mm -hmm. afraid of failing. You're afraid of being made fun of. You're afraid of, of the book being a major success. And then all of a sudden your whole life changes and you don't know what the fuck that looks like. That is your issue. And that's why all of these resources on like how to beat procrastination, how to like learn to love yourself and avoid perfectionism. Most of them, in my opinion, are just bullshit because they're treating the symptom, not the root cause. The root cause is you're fucking afraid. So until you deal with that fear, all those self-sabotaging behaviors will continue to serve a specific function. So then logical question is, well, how do you overcome those fears? The simplest way I've found, and I use with you know clients and I've written about it and things like this, is what I call fear inoculation. Now, I'm not that kind of a doctor, but my basic understanding of how vaccines or inoculations work is you introduce a little bit of the bad thing in a controlled environment so that you can develop an immunity or a tolerance to the real bad thing if you ever come across it in the real world. That's a gross oversimplification for like the real scientists. But so let's say you are afraid of failing. Cool. Well, fear inoculation, we would say, let's assume you fail. Okay. So shit hits the fan, you fail. Well, what now? How are you going to recover? What can you learn from it? What led up to your failure that in hindsight, you could have avoided or prevented. And we just go through this full thought experiment of let's assume the worst case scenario happens. With that assumption in place, what are you going to do? 
What is your plan? How will you recover? Okay. If you are afraid of ridicule, okay, so you do something and then people make fun of you. Cool. What now? Right? Like, are these people, are their opinions even worth giving a shit about in the first place? One of my favorite quotes from Nipsey Hussle goes, you will never be criticized by somebody doing more than you. You will only ever be criticized by somebody doing less than you. So I'll take that to heart because anytime somebody starts to talk shit about me, I'm like, well, what the fuck have you done? Like, do I want your life? Do Mm -hmm. I respect you? Do I want to be more like you? Are you in my corner? Because the people who are in your corner aren't going to talk shit about you or try to tear you down. And the people who do try to tear you down, by definition, are not in your corner. They're just not. And if they're not in your corner, their opinion is completely irrelevant. Okay. So that is an example of fear inoculation. Like, oh, well, what if you get made fun of? Okay. Well, the people criticizing you and making fun of you, are those people you want in your audience? Are those people you give a shit about? Are those people in your corner? If not, then their ridicule doesn't matter. Because what you're effectively saying is, I care more about the opinion of critics, of haters, of armchair quarterbacks than I do people who actually matter, the people I want in my audience, what I believe is truthful and authentic and valid for me to share with the world. That is what you're saying. So whatever the thing is you're truly afraid of, failure, success, ridicule, uncertainty, whatever it is, go through that exercise. Assume your worst fear comes true. With that assumption in place, what will you do then? Because what you will realize is whatever you're afraid of happening, if it happens, you will realize you can deal with it. And now that you have a plan, if it happens, you're no longer as afraid, all right? Because fundamentally, we fear the unknown. So through fear inoculation, we make the unknown known, or at least knowable. And that's how we rob the horsemen of their power over us. That's so interesting. And one thing that I wanted, one thing that popped in my head when you were talking about that is not only the ridicule that you might receive from people, but I also think the same context would apply as far as accepting advice from people. Like if someone is not where I want to go, I don't necessarily consume their advice, right? Your parents might say what worked for them in their life was going to college, getting this job, doing this thing. And it might be good advice for someone that wants to work a nine to five and have that. Um, But when I went on to kind of build my own business, my mom was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, this is insane, right? Um, Because she didn't understand, but I, I didn't internalize that because she is not embodying the kind of life and the type of freedom and the type of impact that I wanted to lead. And so I'm curious if you would apply that same concept of not only consuming, you know, criticism, but also taking in advice or opinions to move the needle forward or pivot um, with things that you are doing. Yeah. So there is a difference between criticism and constructive feedback, right? So criticism is just people talk shit about you. Constructive feedback is is more specific of like, hey, if you did X, it would, you know, you get Y result or you should do X for Y reason. That is usually coming from people who are well, well-intentioned, but it's not, it shouldn't hold equal weight, right? So <clears throat> I have a friend who is 
very good at finding problems. <laughs> he's, he's very intelligent. He is very analytical. Mm-hmm. Early on, I was like, okay, if I can come up with a business plan or, or an idea that can pass his test, then it'll be successful. What I quickly realized was no plan is perfect, right? Which you and I both know. Anybody who's been through shit knows like nothing's fucking perfect. It's always going to go to shit at some point. You have to figure out how to adapt. Yep. And, and everything is like easier in theory. Like everything works in theory, but as soon as you actually fucking start, it just, it goes all to shit. So I, when I realized that I was like, I don't need it to get his stamp of approval. I don't honestly need to even ask for his advice because the further along I got in my own journey, the further away I got from the majority of people that I knew like growing up, right? So like long story short with me, I grew up poor as fuck, like food stamps, public housing, all that other shit, um, like church donations for like holidays sometimes. And then I went to college and with a four-year degree, I was the most educated person in my family ever, I think, let alone getting a master's and a doctorate. But even through getting all those, going through grad school, you know, meeting all these other educated people, doctors, whatever. And then I worked with medical professionals. So I worked alongside physicians and, and administrators and all these other people. Even with all of that, when I moved into content creation and entrepreneurship, I didn't know any content creators or entrepreneurs in real life. Mm-hmm. So all of the friends that I had made, both through growing up and through college, there was just a huge disconnect because when I would you know, talk about like a business win, the most I would give was like, oh, that's cool. But they had no foundation for understanding what the fuck I was doing. Right. Like, again, like you get it. Like, it's just, it's different. Like when you tell, you know, even super supportive family, they're like, oh, that's really cool. But they don't actually understand what the fuck you're doing. (laughs) They're supportive, which is, it's great. Right. I love it. But they don't actually, they don't get it. Right. Versus when you tell another entrepreneur or content creator, like, hey, I did X. You're like, oh, that's fucking awesome. Right. Because they know what it's like to eat shit and grind for fucking years and, you know, and whatever. Right. Like they just, they understand. I didn't have that. For a long, I, I have it now, and I'm, I'm, you know, forever thankful for it. But there was a moment when I realized I can't ask for feedback from people who aren't in it, because whatever feedback they give me, no matter how well intentioned, doesn't actually apply, because they don't understand all of the nuances, all the subtleties that are just part and parcel of entrepreneurship or content creation that unless you're in it day in and day out, you're you're not going to understand, right? So from that moment on, I I quit running shit by people like that. And I still love them, still some of my best friends, but they don't get it, right? And even when I ask other creators, other entrepreneurs, Mm -hmm. I always kind of filter it through how much does this actually apply to me and what I'm trying to do? Because even if they're super successful, you know, like if I know somebody who's really successful with like D to C, you know, like physical products, well, if I'm doing digital products, some of the things that they've learned is going to apply, but a lot may not be right. Cause they've built a team of 30 people. They do all this ad spin and all this other shit, manufacturing that isn't relevant to me. Right. So always filter it through 
how relevant is this to my current situation and the life I'm actively trying to build, right? Because like the other thing with me is like, I much prefer like the solopreneur route. Like I like not having to manage a bunch of people and deal with all these random deadlines and all this other shit, right? That is, and that's what works for me. So when somebody who has a large team and deals with a lot of deadlines and they have all these meetings and shit, their workflow isn't going to work for me, right? So always filter any feedback, any advice you get through. Is this going to take me closer to the life I actually want to be living? Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's great. And that again, just applies to so much health and fitness information that's all over the internet. And most of it's not applicable to most people. So it's just all getting lost in the weeds. Um, and then paralysis by analysis, because you have so much optionality that you're not looking at what's optimal for the person outside of deciding what is best for you and what is meant for you. I think that some of the best feedback as far as what I need to integrate has actually come from taking imperfect action and collecting feedback. And I'm wondering if that experience has been the same for you, because if we remove perfectionistic tendencies and procrastination, it's like, all right, this is the best that I could do based on where I am now, the knowledge that I have, like my perspective wisdom of the situation, I'm going to push publish. And let's say you get feedback that's like, oh, well, maybe you should have done this, or I didn't really love that, or I would love to see this part of it too, right? And then you can start to collect the feedback from the audience that you're catering to, to help you improve your product. For me, that's been probably the best way for me to pave the path forward as you grind through the trenches. Um, But I'm curious if you have that kind of same experience, because I also know a lot of people that can't take feedback, that can't take criticism, and it's debilitating to them, and it prevents them from really excelling um, the way that they could if they could see that as an opportunity and a gift. Yeah, so, I mean, one question to ask is, do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? Right. Because sometimes you're like, no, I'm right. The the rest of the market is wrong. Cool. You can be right and fucking broke. Or you could say, maybe I don't know everything. Let me get feedback from the actual people I'm trying to cultivate an audience of. Right. Or let me actually listen to my customers so that maybe they buy more shit. Maybe I'm I make better shit so more people buy it, whatever. But if you're like, no. The rest of the world is wrong. I am the only person who's right and they don't get it. Cool. Enjoy your your life as a fucking island and nobody gives a shit, right? I so I'm not like a a speed reader which I I read super slow. I don't read a lot of books. Um not because I don't want to because I just I I read slowly but I try to read deeply mm-hmm. rather than like speed reading and read, you know, 103 books a year. Like fuck all that. Um, I would rather read two or three books a year deeply than a hundred quickly. One of the books I read is called the lean startup. And it's like one of the like quintessential, like business books, um, by Eric Reyes, I think is how you pronounce his name, R I E S, um, lean startup. You can Google it. But one of the main concepts in the book is the idea of building an MVP, the minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. And it goes in detail, like actually how to do it. Cause an MVP isn't like just going off half cocked. It's what is the minimum, you know, version of this that I can add, that I can feasibly ship into the, I can hit publish and ship to the world. Right. So you're not just putting out bullshit. Like it's just, it's, you, you don't get content creep or feature creep. You're not constantly adding shit and then it'll be quote unquote good enough to show people. 
It's what is the bare minimum to make this, you know, little embryonic thing be able to sustain itself in the real world. It's like a hatchling. And then you get feedback on it. I love that concept. And now with like everything I put out, whether it is like a tweet, an article, a newsletter issue or a product, whatever it is, or even just like, you know, like, uh, like a new offer. What if I'm going to offer like a new coaching package or some shit, I see everything as an MVP of let me ship version one, get feedback and then iterate. Right. So MVP, then iterate. Like if you just, just fucking start and then iterate from there, that is the simplest piece of business advice I can give anybody, whether it is entrepreneurship, contract creation, whatever the fuck, any publicly facing thing that you want to make money from just fucking start imperfectly. And this just embrace this mindset of every day, I'm going to get a little bit better somehow. That has been the basis of I've, everything I've built is on the basis of start and iterate. Right now, there are other like business things you can do, like you can pre-sell. Like now, any any course I create, I always pre-sell it first so that I validate that people actually want it. Right, because like, so I don't, I'm not familiar with like all the the products and services like you offer, like with fitness and things. But like, let's just do like a stereotypical thing within the business, you know, within the fitness world of like you know, six weeks to six pack abs, right? Like I know that isn't realistic whatsoever, right? But let's just pretend. Instead of spending three months building this fucking program and then be like, hey, everybody, I built this, you know, pay me 50 bucks or pay me $300. And then you just, you're faced with crickets because like nobody wanted it. Nobody asked for it, Mm -hmm. right? Versus saying like, hey, I'm, I'm planning to build this if you're interested, you know, pre-order it now. Well, now you know whether people want it or not, right? Like say like, you know, I'm going to run a, a, a two-week pre-sale. If you order it, you get it at a discount. If not, if enough people don't buy it, if it isn't validated, cool. Now, you know, you spent a couple hours on a landing page instead of months and, and a fuck ton of money building shit nobody wanted, right? So like on the, on like the business end, like more tactically, that is my approach of I pre-sell it and then I build the MVP and then I just iterate. And that has helped me shave off so much time, helped me avoid wasting a bunch of money and it allows me to only build shit that people that I want in my audience actually want to buy. Right. Cause the other thing you, we all run into is people will say, Oh, that's a really good idea. You should do that. Anybody can vote with their mouth. I don't care about that. I care about the people who vote with their wallet, right? If people are like, this is a great idea. Here's my money, build it. Here's my money. I want it. Those are the votes that count, not the votes of like, yeah, if, if you build, if you spent three months building this program, I, yeah, that'd be, I like it. That'd be cool. No, you can't pay the bills with likes and that's a good idea. No, absolutely. Um, one of the best pieces of advice, and I can't remember who said it, I want to say it was Alex Hormozy, um, was around like sell first, fulfill later, right? Because you don't want to spend all this time building this awesome course or this awesome thing. And it's like, that's not even what they needed, right? That's what you thought they would want, but that's not what your clientele actually needs. And so every time I expand in a direction, it's just collecting feedback 
from people that want different services or an expansion of a service, right? And it's like, okay, I can integrate that because now I have 15 people on my current roster that's not even public that want this type of service. And then I can start to kind of integrate that from there. Um, But I find that to be really, really good piece of advice for people. And I don't, again, I'm not saying I'm I'm, uh, the most risk tolerant person, but I certainly kind of take the leap and figure out how to work the parachute on the way down kind of person. So it makes life fun. (laughs) Well, and and one other piece, so like I recently um, created like a coaching course, right? Because like had a lot of people asking me like, how do I become a coach? How do I level up as a coach? Because they had heard about some of like the higher profile coaching clients I'd had, you know, I had the background as a psychologist and all this other shit. Because coaching is like a wild west, right? Like, you know, if you're trying to do like executive life, mindset, habits, coaching, whatever you want to call it, it, you know, there's a lot of bullshit out there Yep. and it's unregulated. So I got, I got tired of asking, of answering the same questions over and over again. So it's like, I'll just build a course throw everything I know into it, make it self-paced, good to go. What I did and this, again, like my full process that by no means am I an Alex Hormozy, right? Like always defer to that motherfucker. But what I've learned is I pre-sell it. And then all the people who purchase, I send an onboarding survey. And all the onboarding survey basically says is like, what would make this course a success for you? Like, what are you most interested in learning about? What have you struggled with so far? And what else have you tried? And then like, I have an idea of what I plan to build, but then I take the, the answers from that onboarding survey and I just build that. Yep. And then I just, you know, then I just ship V1. I ship that MVP. So like literally I say, here's what I want to build. If you give me your money, I'm going to ask you what you want me to build. And then I build it and I ship it. So like, I'm only building what people who have paid me want me to build. That reduces as much risk as you can feasibly reduce and allows you to focus on building shit people actually want rather than saying, well, I think they might want this. Maybe they'd want that. If they didn't ask for it, they probably don't fucking want it. Absolutely. So I want to pivot a little bit. Um, you put out an article that was talking about the way that people speak about other people. And you gave examples of autism um, and things along those lines. And one thing that I find uh, paramount in clients that I work with is not just external dialogue, but the way that they speak about themselves and the way that that manifests into creating whether action or lack thereof and almost an upper limit on what they can achieve because they've already decided that they're incapable of doing the thing. And so I'm curious on your take on how to point out your limiting beliefs. A lot of them people aren't even aware of, like I'm just this way, or I can't do that, or I'm not smart enough to do that. I'm not pretty enough for this. Right. Um, And it's just a natural narrative, Uh, but it does carry over into how they carry themselves, the actions they're willing to take, uh, the risk tolerance that they have, or the relationships that they cultivate. Um, I'm curious on your observation and how you would help someone become more aware of those things and then how they can start to shift that internal dialogue. So like I said earlier, the four most common limiting beliefs, I call the four horsemen of fear. But beyond that, the other large category of limiting beliefs are personal narratives, right? And all personal narrative is, is the story you tell yourself about yourself, about what you're capable of and about the world around you, right? So something like people can't be trusted. Well, that's a story you're telling yourself, 
And you default to that anytime you interact with people, mm-hmm. right? When we say things like, so there's a difference between describing yourself and confining yourself. You can describe tendencies you have. Like you said, like basically I'm risk averse. I'm not overly risk tolerant. That isn't necessarily a limiting belief because you're just describing a pattern you have recognized in yourself. That doesn't necessarily like cap your potential or ability to grow. But when it becomes part of your identity, I am not smart enough. I am broken. I am not good enough. I don't deserve X. People like me can't do why. That's when you go from describing yourself to confining yourself of this is how I have been and will always be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so uh, with it being a personal narrative, right? If you think about it just like as a narrative, as a story, it is possible largely to kind of rewrite your story. Right. So in like, you know, going back to like therapy. <clears throat> so psychologists would call it cognitive restructuring. And all it means is like changing how you think or, or how you describe things. That's just, that's all it means. So think about it like this. We'll use you as an example because you are fitness person. You, you are in shape. You understand fitness, all this other stuff. I, I'm not going to hit on you, but you are not horrendous to look at, right? We'll, we'll make this caveats, right? Thanks. So if you being who you are and how you look and how you, you know, compose yourself, if you looked in the mirror every day and you said to yourself, I am fat and I am ugly. And you said that just once a day, every day for a year at the end of 365 days, your reality, your perception would likely be, regardless of what the scale said or, you know, body, you know, circumference, all this other shit, regardless of all that, you would most likely believe that you were fat and that you were ugly, right? And that's, that's part of like, you know, getting into clinical shit, like body dysmorphia and shit, right? Mm -hmm. That's why you see dudes, you know, with just traps to their fucking ears and just like all the shit. They're like, yeah, I'm small, bro. Like, no, you're, you're not. Right. Like your perception is fucked. Yeah. So, but the opposite can also be true. You can hijack that same just wiring and you can look in your reflection. If you have lower self-esteem or if you have a, a more toxic personal narrative, you do the same thing, look in the mirror. And I'm not saying like, whatever that movie is, is like, you is kind, you is good. Like whatever, whatever that, that movie is like, not that shit. Right. But like, you got to find what works for you. Right? Like it can't be super cringy or else you won't do it. But if you can find a more empowering, positive personal narrative that fits the person you want to become, you can do that exact same shit of like, I am capable. Every day I'm getting a little bit better, right? I'm learning to accept myself. I'm I'm working to, to improve whatever it is. And you do that every day. At first, it'll feel awkward, but eventually it'll become routine. And eventually doing it long enough, that will sink into your mind and just become intrinsic, right? It works either way. So if you had these more toxic personal narratives or just disempowering personal narratives, learning to find ways of restructuring them, rewiring them, rewriting them on just a day-to-day basis. The other thing you can do if it's within your control is to change your environment, right? So like myself, for example. You know, I grew up 
poor kid from rural Appalachia, also shit, food stamps, also shit I've already told you about, you know, lived through domestic violence, so abuse and all this other shit. And when I got to college, I was surrounded by people with different narratives. And then I, you know, left the therapy world, started entrepreneurship. And for a long time, I was like, I don't know if I'm capable of this because I don't know anybody who's done this. Everybody I know is a disempowering personal narrative of people like us can't own their own businesses. Entrepreneurship is for a different type of person. We don't have the skills. I didn't go to college to learn business. I don't have those skills. Thus, I cannot be successful. So then I surrounded myself with people who proved it was possible. Mm. So then talking to them, learning what their personal narrative sounded like, trying slowly to integrate them into myself, adopting that mentality of, let me create an MVP and just iterate. So now it, it isn't like, a, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. It's, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing, but I'll figure it out. Yep. <laughs> right? Yeah. The but is the caveat. That's it, right? So, so those are are, are ways you can rewrite it. Because, like, like for, again, going back to therapy, like whatever the fuck your personal narrative is, if if you know if you so one person is a couple people I worked with back when I did therapy is they identified as a victim, right? Now, granted, sometimes people go through really rough shit, right? Abuse, all these other things, but identifying as a victim skews your entire worldview because then you adopt the victim role in any situation, right? And then you see the world as happening to you and you have no control. So even in situations where you actually have control, you, you, you don't see that. So learning, so, you know, with them learning to shift from a victim mindset to a survivor mindset doesn't change what you went through. It changes how you think about what you went through. It changes the story you tell yourself about what what you went through means to you, the symbolism, the meaning behind it. The actual history didn't change because you can't change history, right? But just the fact that they learned slowly to adopt the mentality of, I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. Well, now that is way more empowering, right? And then sometimes you can go even further into like, you know, being like a victor. Like I actually, I won something because I went through, you know, hell and came out the other side. And I actually learned to grow from what I went through, which in clinical psychology, they call that traumatic growth, I think. So like, the, and, and all of this is literally just changing how, how the, the words that swirl around your head on a day-to-day basis. It takes consistent effort, but it is doable. Yeah. And one thing, um, that I've always done. And I've been through domestic violence, terrible relationships. I had this whole inadequacy syndrome. I was never good enough, good for now, but never good forever. Right. And one thing that I've kind of programmed myself to believe is that even on the worst days, when it feels like everything's falling apart, life is happening on purpose. Like I may not understand it right now, but I know that I have the grit, tenacity, and mental fortitude to continue to push forward. And I will come out the other side of this. How? I don't know yet. The only option is just to keep going. And I think adopting that mindset that allowed me to forgive myself for obviously not knowing what I didn't know then and accepting things that I shouldn't have accepted, like trying to survive and doing all that stuff. But now as I move forward with that, anytime something hits the fan, I don't get anxious or as anxious, right? I'm not um, frozen and I don't get depressive. 
Uh, I just am like, okay, this sucks. I can't control all these things. I can control what I do next. So what will I be proud of a year from now, six months from now, a week from now? Like, what can I do to take control of the one thing, of the few things that I can control in this moment? And then do my best to kind of sift through the bullshit until the sun comes back, right? But there's something that you said about like victim, victor, um, and survivor. And I'm curious and uh, I feel free to challenge me here. I don't agree with labels. I, I think that once you put a label on yourself, you then tend to adapt your entire identity around this thing, this idea, right? A label to, truly is an idea of something that you might embody or experience, right? Um, people that are anxious will be like, oh, I'm, I'm just an anxious person, right? And then you kind of manifest that action because you've labeled yourself this way. Whereas I tend to believe, and again, you can tell me if I'm wrong, um, obviously there are extremes on either side of the spectrum and I don't want to dismiss those things, but I think that every human experiences anxiety in some moments and depression in some moments and grief in some moments and um, maybe arrogance or ego, right? All of these things are kind of a part of the human condition. And so I, I try very hard not to lean into any type of label for myself because I don't ever want to lead with that as being what I am. No, I, I, I don't disagree. So re structuring a label is usually like the first piece, right? So like if you have like a toxic narrative that is causing you to, to hold on to this, this more victim mindset of the label that I am a victim or I am broken, or I am, you know, one of the things I hear all the time is like, Oh, I am ADHD. One, you're fucking not, you, you are not a, an entire disorder. And also you're more than likely, you don't actually even have ADHD. You're probably self-diagnosed based on some fucking TikTok. But it's a whole it's a whole separate thing. Everybody's got ADHD for for TikTok. But if you watch any video, like, oh, do you breathe? You must have ADHD. Like it's a whole thing. But <laughs> it's if you if you ever look at like ADHD TikTok, it's everything that they they describe is virtually like, can you sit down and focus for eight hours a day? No, you probably have ADHD. It's shit like that. It's just it's fucking worthless. But anyway, so I think that when you make your identity revolve around a singular label, it is highly problematic the majority of the time. So in psychology, we have this phrase, rigidity leads to pathology. And all that means is anytime, no matter how good a system is or, or how you know fluid it is or, or you know how, how well-oiled it is, eventually, if it is rigid, if it refuses to adapt, it eventually will break down. Right. So learning cognitive flexibility is key to, you know, well-being. So even if you have, you know, the label of like, oh, I'm a happy person, that in general is good, but eventually it will it can cause you to have problems because you're going to now reject negative emotions rather than trying to integrate them and, and learn to deal with them. Right. And again, like going back to therapy world, like that creates a whole slew of issues because now you're just, you're rejecting valid emotions and experiences and shit. Right. Cause you're like, no, 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 I'm a happy person. I can never be sad. I can never be angry. It's like, yeah. Or you could learn to fucking deal with that shit. But labels themselves aren't inherently bad. It's when we rely on them too much and we hang our entire identity on. Them. Right. So, like for me, for example, 
I am a martial artist in that I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I am a psychologist in that I have a degree in it, right? I am an entrepreneur, a writer, a content creator, all those other things. But none of them singularly define me. And even trying to list all of them doesn't collectively define me, right? It's usually a label just a way for you to like communicate to somebody else an, an aspect of you. Mm-hmm. But again, just like with, with these, these narratives and things, this can, you know, describe you or confine you. And that I think is really what you're describing is like, I don't want to confine myself to one thing because, you know, I contain multitudes sort of a deal. Like I am more than any singular or collection of labels can ever fully explain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that that's really, really an important perspective. And I just see so many people, even ADHD, like, well, I can't do that. I have ADHD. I'm sorry. It's like, that's it. It's just like, there's no hope. There's no progress. Like you have no fucking control. Like, nope, I have ADHD. There's nothing I can do ever. That's when it's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Um, So one thing that you said, and I'm actually really curious on your take um, and we'll end with this, but you put on your Twitter, I believe that emotions are not rational and they should not be instructions for action. Now I'm curious on, I do agree with that in certain contexts, but I'm curious on if, if emotions aren't rational. Um, and I would, I would agree that the majority of time they're not, how do, what are emotions? What do you think the purpose of emotions are and how would people who need to continue to take action despite how they might emotionally regulate? How do they work past that? So that was the quote by Adam Savage of Mythbusters. So for the record for people, yeah, that wasn't me just saying some shit, but, but I, I largely agree with it in that. So I am a big fan of stoicism. I think I said that before, again, the whole memento mori thing, but a big part of stoicism overall is focusing on what is within your control versus everything that is outside of your control. And emotions are part of that. So, you know, some people allow their emotions to rule them, right? Well, you can experience any emotion like that. You know, stoicism isn't about rejecting emotions. It's about controlling it sort of about like controlling them, but more importantly, controlling the expression of them. Right. So for example, if something pisses me off, it can be instructive in so much as I need to figure out what about this thing that is is triggering this reaction or something that is going on in my environment. What about this is provoking this emotion in me? Right. So it isn't that I'm saying I'm not angry. It's where is my anger being like, where is it coming from? And then when it happens, what is my personal narrative, right? What are all these thoughts that are coming into, into my head when I am angry? How can I, you know, learn from this? Because anger largely is not particularly helpful on a day-to-day basis, right? Like even in fighting, the calmer fighter typically, you know, with MMA anyway, tends to, to be victorious because they're not spastic and impulsive shit. So when I experience anger, it isn't that I am angry, thus my anger is justified, right? Because that's what it means, like being rational, meaning it makes sense. It is justified. So I am justified in the actions that I take. Or 
if you know we're in a relationship and you do something and I say, you made me angry or you made me sad, thus it is your responsibility to manage my emotions. Mm. That's something that, that comes up a lot in less emotionally mature relationships. Yes, <laughs> right? it like, does. I feel bad. It's your, or, or I had a bad day at work. Your job is to make me feel better. That's super fucked up. Right. So that's, that's the part of it that, of that quote that I, I really resonate with is like, they're not rational in that they're not justified for you to make decisions based off of them. The majority of the time. Now, if that decision is I need to figure out my shit and why I'm getting angry all the time or why I struggle to self-regulate, then it can be instructive. But to say the fact that I'm angry justifies me punching a hole through the wall or the fact that I'm having a bad day justifies me taking it out on you when you didn't do anything objectively to, to provoke that, that is where that's coming in, right? So learning to understand sort of like metacognition, which is just like thinking about thinking, learning to, to be more self-aware of the emotions that you're experiencing and why they're coming up, when they're coming up and how you deal with them after the fact, that can be super helpful. But outright emotions are largely irrational and your decisions shouldn't be made based on them. Right? Because like, think about anytime you've had an argument or you've been pissed off, whatever the fuck you said when you were angry, when you calm down, you're like, damn, I should not have said that. Right. Or like, damn, I should not have broken my laptop. I should not have, you know, kicked the dog or whatever you did. Like when you're calm, you're like, there was no justification for my actions. That's what that quote is referencing. Yeah. So it's about, um, eliminating impulsive reactionary responses due to an emotional, um, experience. I think, um, one thing that I have done a lot in my life is being able to utilize emotional energy to do something productive, right? When I was a kid, I wasn't the wealthiest. I didn't have a lot. And so my mom worked three jobs. And so I'd go to the gym. And so I didn't get a lot of attention that I wanted, Um, but I would use that kind of anger for wishing that I had, you know, a a dad, I didn't have a dad or wishing that my mom was there um, to kind of channel that into something like sports. And so I ended up excelling in that. And I use that same principle in my business. If I'm upset, angry, sad, whatever, I'm like, how do I take this potential energy and like put it into something positive. Um, So that's where I find emotions. If you can control them because they are kind of a a catalyst for energy, control them and then distribute them into something more productive. But I don't necessarily understand. And I, maybe you don't know, I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but I think men and women one like very much, are, are different in their emotional expressions and regulation. Like men could be happy, upset, um, depressed, anxious, and it's just angry. Like if men are, are either know. happy, we're allowed, content, we're allowed to be, or angry. We got, we got three crayons. We are allowed to be happy, angry, and horny. That's it. Yeah. We, yeah. we can't be depressed. We can't be anxious. We're fucking angry. I'm not sad. I'm angry. I'm not anxious. I'm angry. I'm not embarrassed. I'm fucking angry. We got three crayons in our crayon box of colors. 
Yeah. And whereas women are like everything you need to know, it's just like, oh, I'm over here and I'm happy and I'm insulted and I'm insecure right now and I'm anxious and you know, whatever. And it's, it's, I find it very fascinating. And I, I would assume though, I don't know like the research on this, that men experience the same emotion, but the way that they show it is typically through those three, those three things. And so it makes it almost like um, a puzzle because it's, it's when you see a man and he's upset, like, is he really angry or, or is he sad or is he, you know, anxious? Is, is he, you know, what's going on? Cause it's just anger. It's just angry or happy or horny. Right. And so it's like women are much more complex in their expression of those things. So, yeah, I'm not a neuroscientist. I'd, I'd love to know, you know, Huberman's take on all this shit, but um, it, it, it isn't just that we, we, we experience them, but, you know, just say they're all angry. They're all angry so much as that's, this is why I like the, the crayon box analogy. So again, going back to stereotypes, if you ask a guy like, Hey, what color is, is that car? He's going to say red. He's not going to say brick or cherry or, you know, fucking all the other like colors. Right. But again, stereotypically, if you ask a woman, what color is that? Oh, that's mauve. That's periwinkle. That's lavender. A dude's gonna be like, nah, that's fucking purple. <laughs> right. But it, it's sort of that same thing of like we, you know, even like that, like we learn colors differently. Like sometimes, like one, because the guys are more likely to be colorblind. So we don't see a lot of us don't see the same range. But beyond that, even if we experience similar emotions, a lot of men, and again, I, I don't like the neurochemistry of it, but from a from a, a socialization standpoint men are not taught emotional labeling, right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, and I'm not, this is just a generalization, but a lot of times men, like when you start to feel, you know, embarrassed or something, we, we don't process that. We're not taught to process that. It's, I feel embarrassed, thus I feel threatened and I, I defend myself through anger. Versus a lot of times, maybe like with a little girl, it's like, hey, let's process this. Let, let's talk about what is going on. Versus little boys, it's like, no, big boys don't cry. Right. And again, I'm sure plenty of plenty of women grew up with similar rhetoric, right? But stereotypically, which is what we're talking about right now, boys are taught big boys don't cry, you know, boys don't cry, da da. da. And then we learn I can feel good, I can feel bad, I can feel horny. Everything else has to fit into one of those three fucking crayons. So then when I am feeling betrayed, okay, or I feel vulnerable, which is a word, you know, traditional, you know, masculine dudes don't, don't use the word vulnerable, right? I don't even know what this emotion I'm experiencing is because I don't have language to label it. Mm. Because of that, you know, if, if you feel vulnerable, well, the fact that you can label it as I feel vulnerable, thus let me go into my toolbox of, of skills to cope, which are the ones that work for feeling vulnerable? Oh, this one here, you know, I feel vulnerable. Here's a, a coping mechanism that allows me to deal with feeling vulnerable and you're good. You have a lot of tools and a lot of ways to, to figure out which tool is the right one for the job. Whereas guys, it's the actual emotion may be vulnerable, but we don't know how to label that. It's like, I got a fucking hammer and a screwdriver. Well, this bitch is going to look like a nail. Cause I don't want the <laughs> fuck any, and even a screwdriver is a hammer when you're pissed off. So like, I don't know what the fuck else this is. 
this has to be anger. So I'm going to deal with it as if it were anger, right? That is a, a huge issue that just, you know, modern men and masculinity issues. That is a recurring issue is like a lot of guys don't like they We struggle with emotional labeling, which is another reason why you see, you know, how guys are just kind of portrayed as fucking cavemen. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. Um, very interesting. We'll have to do another follow-up just on the on the differences on that. But um, Corey, I appreciate you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. If people want to, can you tell them where to find you? Um, and we'll definitely have you back in the future. Yeah, I'd love to. So I am just Corey Wilkes, Sidey across the board, CoreyWilkesSidey.com, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you want to go. Um, just Corey Wilkes, Sidey, and you'll find me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Corey. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye.